Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads, Season 2, World in Peril by Ken White. This is a copy of the PDF that I have gotten and I'm reading off of archive.org, the Internet Archive. Um, I suggest you go find a copy of this PDF for yourself, as there are many, many images uh, that I can attempt to describe, and of course, a picture is worth a thousand words, so check it out for yourself. Um, thanks again for tuning in, guys, everybody. I, if you listened to the last episode, um, you heard me say, or asked a question, actually, of everybody, if I should continue to read it chapter by chapter, or, in my opinion, skip ahead to the interesting stuff, which is at chapter 27, terrestrial magnetism, uh, cataclysms, and pole reversals. Um, and I gave it my Twitter, Twitter handle, at age underscore prep. And I didn't hear back from anybody, so I'm going to go ahead and skip to chapter 27. So the other subsequent chapters between 9 and 27 I have not read. Um, you can read them yourself if you want that PDF. It's at archive.org. I'm sure you can find it other places also. I just want to let you know where I got my copy from. And um, also... Um, I wanted to let you guys know that, um, man, if you're really looking for a good CBD product, I have found hemp lucid to be um, pretty pretty good for what for what I need. And um, if you go to my anchor page in the description of this uh, podcast, I will post the link to their product. Um, so, without further ado, thanks for tuning in, guys. Let's get started with Chapter 27, World in Peril by Ken White. Terrestrial Magnetism Studies After the first flight by the 46th over the polar sea, the navigators of the flight recommended that an intensive study be made of the magnetic compass and its reliability in this area. One of the navigators in the flight made preparations to carry out such a study, but abandoned the project as flights did not go over enough area at that time to permit a complete survey. When Project Polaris got underway, the opportunity for a complete study presented itself. First Lieutenant Frank O. Klein accepted this responsibility and went all out in pursuit of definitive information on magnetism. In Frank Klein's own words, quote, It all began when we were told in textbooks by the, and by the authorities that any magnet compass was useless in the Arctic. The magnetic compass was used to was said to fluctuate wildly because of the proximity to the North Magnetic Pole, but as often the case, conventional wisdom was proven to be flawed. As chance would have it, I had been appointed by Flight B Navigator, whose primary area of concern within the Arctic encompassed the islands of the Canadian Archipelago. This was the area within which the North Magnetic Pole was to be found. To my surprise, early flights in the fall of 1946 suggested that the flux gate compass was not entirely useless. Although the indicator typically oscillated slightly in the region, about 2 to 3 degrees, the requisite sensitivity for directional indications appeared always to be given. Unfortunately, its navigational use was precluded since the magnetic variation or declination values depicted on our charts were purely extrapolated values could not be immediately corroborated and obviously could not be relied upon. A plan of action suggested itself. I would ask our Flight B navigators to read and record the Fluxgate Compass indication every time a true heading value was obtained from the Astro Compass. 
this procedure could be made optional for navigators and other flights of our squadron. Since a great many polar flights were being planned, these flights could produce sufficient magnetic variation values to develop a reliable chart of polar isogonals. Such a chart would provide polar navigators with a backup means of navigation, particularly in an emergency. At this time, a search for the current location of the North Magnetic Pole was at best an afterthought, but the afterthought provided a valuable byproduct. Since the completed project was not a part of our squadron's assigned mission and would involve additional work for our navigators, I sought approval for the work plan for my immediate supervisor, the squadron navigator, Norbert Zwecki, who, true to form, gave his approval and enthusiastic support. The Development of an Arctic Magnetic Chart Sufficient data had been collected and analyzed by the end of 1947 to prepare a chart depicting isogonals north of the North American continental shelf to 85 degrees north latitude and roughly from the western half of the Canadian archipelago westward to the international dateline. The chart reflected approximately 600 mean variation values computed from data recorded by a number of navigators. The individual magnetic variation values were determined by comparing two headings obtained from an astro compass with magnetic headings simultaneously obtained from the fluxgate compass. In a large percentage of the magnetic observations, readings were averaged over a two-minute period and compared with the true heading value existing at the mid-period of the observation. Consequently, the total of individual magnetic readings considerably exceeded 600. The chart was sectored into many areas, for each of which mean variation values were determined. The average probable error for the mean was calculated to be no more than 3. The subject chart was published in Volume 30, Number 2, Transactions, American Geophysical Union, AGU, for April 1949. In addition, the AGU extended its membership to the author. The Department of Commerce, U.S. Coast Guard, and Geodetic Survey also accorded recognition to the project in a letter to Lt. Klein stating, The availability of the data and the chart have been of great specific value to this Bureau in preparing magnetic charts. The Search for the Magnetic North Pole by mid-year 1947, sufficient data, 1,000 determinations, had been collected within the Canadian archipelago to provide some surprising findings. For one, the fluxgate compass was responsive to relatively weak horizontal component of the Earth's magnetic field in almost all of the region. The exception was a small elliptical-shaped area whose axis extended northwest to southeast from Boothia, Pennsylvania, Boothia Peninsula to Bathurst Island and the area about the area of Montana, which is small compared to the 5,500,000 square miles of the Arctic Ocean. Although magnetic readings were sometimes possible within this area, they were often erratic and unreliable. However, sufficient data became available to yield unexpected and confusing results. From a navigational standpoint, it appeared we were confronted not with one but with three magnetic poles. A more critical analysis became necessary. This analysis indicated that only one of the poles met the acid test of complete isogonal convergency. 
This was the central pole of, on the northwestern Prince of Wales Island at 7330 north and 101 west was reported at that time. The two foci of the ellipse, one on Bathurst Island and the other on Boothia Peninsula, were particularly perplexing. Neither of the two indicated complete isogonal convergency. Of the two, the area on Bathurst Island was more complete in this respect. Incidentally, the Air Force charts current at the time depicted the magnetic pole on Boothia Peninsula. Then, too, we had experimented with a number of homing missions which had successfully homed in on each of the two foci. This was particularly significant since it suggested that the two local poles could provide of singular importance in a polar navigational emergency. Furthermore, I had personally witnessed complete fluxgate indicator gyrations at only three locations on all of my missions in the Arctic, and these were very near or at the three subject locations. These conditions prompted the reference to two local or secondary poles, one on the Bathurst Islands at 7535 north and 10330 west, the more dominant secondary pole, and the other on Boothia Peninsula at 7040 north by 9720 west. It was not long after these findings had been officially reported that we learned that a Canadian ground expedition had been sent into, into the Canadian archipelago with the specific mission of locating the position of the North Magnetic Pole. This expedition could not confirm our indications of secondary poles on Boothia and Bathurst. However, a letter dated July 21, 1948, written by R. Glenn Maddell, Chief of Terrestrial Magnetism, Department of Mines and Resources, Canada, addressed to Lieutenant Frank O'Klein, stated, However, we agree on one point, and that is the presence of what we call within the main magnetic pole on northwestern Prince of Wales of Ireland. I have accepted as a purely preliminary value the position latitude 73 north and longitude 100 west. Your value of 73.15 north and 99.45 west is an excellent agreement, and I suggest that you use your value by all means. This is astounding, being just a few miles from the ground expedition's results. A United States Air Force nationwide press release on October 9th, October 19th, 1947, announced the discovery of the three magnetic North Poles, unfortunately without qualification. Although Frank Klein was never accorded any formal recognition from the USAF for his efforts, he nevertheless has remained thankful for the fortune of having been a member of the 72nd Recon Squadron photographic. It was only by virtue of his having been an Air Force member of that unit that aerial terrestrial magnetic research in the Arctic was made possible. In the words of 1st Lieutenant David J. Haney, another outstanding navigator in the squadron and author of Navigation North of 70, quote, As is so often the case, Klein's co-workers did not always appreciate the hours of study and hard work he did on this project. His findings, probably more than any other single project, have been responsible for the attention focus on the organization by scientific agencies. The much-deserved recognition for his work came when he was invited to accept membership in the American Geophysical Union. This honor is not only a hard-earned recognition for Klein, <clears throat> but also for the squadron and the Air Force. End quote. 
Chapter 28, Clues to a Cataclysm. Frank Oakline's pinpointing of the North Magnetic Pole's locations at positions 125 to 200 miles further north than was earlier predicted attracted great interest in the scientific community, particularly among top government scientists under Vannevar Bush. Since 1831, when the first observations were made, the magnetic North Pole had remained almost static on Boothia Peninsula until 1945. From 7060 North by 9654 West to 7030 North by 96 West. Klein's discovery in 1947 that the main magnetic pole was located in the northwestern shore of Prince of Wales Island revealed that it had dramatically moved 165 miles closer to the geographic North Pole. The government scientists subsequently began a scientific investigation into the ramification of Klein's findings. Many of the study groups held at the Pentagon were attended by Major White and Dr. Paul Sippel. The first determination of the Pentagon study was that while the rate of northward magnetic pole movement, which Dr. Paul Sippel sought to establish, seemed to be unpredictable. It had been in a decidedly northwest-westerly direction, moving ever closer to the geographic North Pole. The questions in the minds of many of the scientific community was what would happen if and when the magnetic pole converged on the geographic pole? Was there a connection between the powerful geomagnetic forces involved in the polar movement and the me mechanism that caused geological change? The forces that have created mountains have remained a mystery, and yet there has to be an explanation for the high strata of mountain rock containing marine fossils. Some tremendous force had to lift up the land with such pressure so as to raise former seabeds to high altitudes. There must be some reason why beaches of sand formed from ocean wave action are found at 1,500 foot altitudes in the mountains of Italy. Scientists have not been able to agree on whether the change that raised the seabeds was slow or rapid. Spitsbergen is an island well within the Arctic Circle and is, is now snow and icebound most of the year. Yet on Spitsbergen, there is ample evidence that tropical corals once grew on the shores of the island. Whew, I'm uh, sorry, getting chills. <clears throat> Spitsbergen also has considerable coal deposits attesting to the island's once temperate or tropical climate. Also found there were numerous fossils of water lilies embedded in the lignite, also confirming the island once had a warm and marshy environment. How can we explain the once temperate climate of this Arctic region unless either the whole earth was once warmer than it is now, or unless the poles were previously in different locations relative to the earth's crusts? When Admiral Byrd went to the Arctic from 1933 to 1935, his expedition found leaf stem imprints and fossilized wood under the snow and ice. Sir Ernst Shackleton found coal beds within 200 miles of the geographic South Pole, evidence of massive primeval forestation in Antarctica. The explanation is not as obvious as saying that the Antarctic was once devoid of ice so that the plants and forests could grow. We still must account for the fact that massive forestation doesn't occur where there are six months of darkness during the year, a characteristic of polar areas. 
Also found near the geographic South Pole were the fossilized footprints of prehistoric mammal-like reptile. Since reptiles are known to be cold-blooded and need of warmth of the environment to sustain their body heat, it is evident that the Antarctic did not always have a cold climate. If this is true, Antarctica could not have always been located at the South Geographic Pole. Uh, sidebar, I, I think it used to be located on the equator or near the equatorial area. And sidebar. Although the phenomena referred to as an ice age, to as ice ages are an accepted fact, few scientists can agree on how they are caused. Not only have mile-high ice sheets covered the northern North American continent as far south as New Jersey, Ohio, and Wisconsin, but Europe, Africa, and India have had their ice ages too. There are many theories as to how they are caused, but none have been proven. We are left with numerous explanations, some plausible and some improbable. The last ice age is to believe to have ended only about 10,000 years ago, leaving many mysteries unsolved. Millions of animals were frozen alive by the sudden glacial conditions of the last ice age, and hundreds of thousands still remain where they died, buried frozen in the ground. The new Siberian islands, located 200 miles off the northern coast of Siberia, are almost literally composed of bones and remains of multitudes of prehistoric mammoth saber-toothed cats, giant beavers the size of goats, prehistoric rhinoceros, buffalo, deer, horses, and other small mammals. How could so many of these animals, also found throughout Siberia and Alaska, be frozen intact within the ground in such a way that <clears throat> 10,000 years later their flesh, when thawed, was said to be edible? Indeed, at one, Russian scientist, <clears throat> at one Russian scientist banquet at Moscow's Academy of Sciences in the 1930s, the main course consisted of quite, delici of quite delicious mammoth steaks. And there is a reference number here, 9. Um, I'm going to try to find that after I read this chapter. Another question is how the tundra of northern Siberia and Alaska could have supported such a large population of prehistoric animals unless the Arctic once had a temperate climate with less vegetation. Well, if you listen to season one, you have an inkling of, of this. It is well known that tree rings are a measure of tree growth over annual seasons. Why then do prehistoric frozen trees unearthed in Spitzenberg Spitsberg in Norway have no rings. Only if there were once no seasons in Spitsbergen would the trees have no rings. But the only place on earth where there are no seasons is at the equator. If the earth's equator once passed through or near Spitsbergen, then it is obvious that relative to the earth's crest, the earth's geographic poles would have once had to have been in different locations than they are now. What caused their apparent shift, or I, I call it the slip? An expedition digging in the Canadian archipelago only a few hundred miles from the geographic North Pole found under the ice and snow hundreds of frozen, not petrified, prehistoric tree trunks, shattered as though by massive tidal wave activity, sidebar, we all need to start building Irving Finkel's arcs, preferably out of more durable material. Um, 
uh, for the CYA <laughs> uh, through by massive tidal wave activity and buried in the sand. Beneath the surface, they found another layer of similar tree trunks, and beneath that layer, yet another, until they had identified nine different levels of evidence of catastrophic change. Not only was the Arctic apparently once a highly forested temperate or tropical region, but it was the subject to periodic cataclysmic upheavals. It is clear that there have been tense, sorry, it is clear that there have been times in the Earth's history when geological change has upset the living conditions of its flora and fauna. Many examples argue that such changes are violent and dramatic. As Professor Frank C. Hibben points out in his book, The Lost Americans, the Alaskan muck is like a fine dark gray sand. Within this mass, frozen solid, lie the twisted parts of animals and trees intermingled with lenses of ice and layers of peat and mosses. It looks as though in the midst of some cataclysmic catastrophe of 10,000 years ago, the whole Alaskan world of living animals and plants was suddenly frozen in mid-motion in a grim charade. Throughout the Yukon and its tributaries, the gnawing currents of the river have eaten into many a frozen bank of muck to reveal bones and tusks of these animals protruding at all levels. Whole gravel bars in the muddy river were formed of the jumbled fragments of animal remains. The Pleistocene period ended in death. There, this is no ordinary extinction of a vague geological period which fizzles to an uncertain end. This death was catastrophic and all-inclusive. The large animals that had given their name to the period became extinct. Their death marked the end of an era. But how did they die? What caused the extinction of 40 million animals? This mystery forms one of the oldest detective stories in the world. A good detective story involves humans and death. These conditions are met at the end of the Pleistocene. In this particular case, the death was of such colossal proportions as to be staggering, as to be staggering to contemplate. The life on Earth can be subject to such wholesale, if life on Earth can be subject to such wholesale destruction. This is much to be, there is much to be said for learning all that we can about the geological forces involved. Chapter 29, Polar Wander, by Frank N. Magill. Type of Earth Science, Geophysics, Field of Study, Geomagnetism, Geomagnetism and Paleomagnetism. Evidence from several of the Earth scientists clearly demonstrates that the Earth's magnetic and geographic poles have been located at widely separated places relative to its surface during the planet's geological history. Uh, goes through a list of terms, principal terms. Asthenosphere, hypothetical zone of the Earth that lies beneath the lithosphere and within which material is believed to yield readily to persistent stresses. Ice ages. Periods in the Earth's past when large areas of the present continents were glaciated. Lithosphere, the outer layer of the Earth. North Geographic Pole, the northernmost region of the Earth located at the northern point of the planet's axis of rotation. North Magnetic Pole, a small non-stationary area in the Arctic Circle toward which a compass needle points from any direction on Earth, any location on Earth. Paleomagnetism. The intensity and direction of residual magnet magnetization in ancient rocks, 
plate tectonics, the study of the motion of the Earth's crust. Um, this looks like it's uh, a paper of sorts um, about the wandering of the poles. Um, not exactly. I mean, yeah, that's what it looks like. <clears throat> All right, uh, summary of phenomena. Shortly before World War II, geophysicists discovered a method of determining the location of rocks on the Earth's surface at the time that they were formed relative to the North Magnetic Pole. Thus began the study of paleomagnetism. Paleomagnetic studies quickly yielded very puzzling and often contradictory results. The new science produced evidence that the North Magnetic Pole has changed its location by thousands and even tens of thousands of miles, hundreds of times during the Earth's geological history. <clears throat> Oh boy. Since Earth scientists are generally agreed that the North Magnetic Pole has always corresponded closely with the North Magnetic Pole, this evidence seemed to indicate that the Earth's axis of rotation must have changed, a highly unlikely occurrence. Well, <laughs> if your evidence points to it, then it probably happened. Um, the Earth's axis of rotation must have changed. I, that's uh, some scary stuff. As the paleomagnetic evidence for different locations of the poles in the past accumulated through measurements of rock formations from around the world, more and more of the scientists began to accept the theory of continental drift. This theory offered an explanation of the paleomagnetic evidence without the necessity of postulating that the Earth's axis of rotation had changed in the past. Uh, they're going down the wrong rabbit hole. Alfred Wagener early in the 20th century had drawn attention to the theory that the continents moved in relation to one another. Most geologists initially greeted his theories with derision, but many others agreed with him, causing an often bitter controversy in the earth scientists that lasted almost half a century. The ever-growing body of paleomagnetic evidence could be explained by postulation that the surface areas of the earth move in relationship to the planet's axis of rotation. This explanation proved to be more acceptable to geologists than the idea that the axis of rotation changed. <laughs> more acceptable. <laughs> the evidence shows one thing, but no, no. We need something more reasonable. We can't just go off the facts of the data that we're finding. Oh, boy. With the growing acceptance of the theory of continental drift in the 1940s, geologists began trying to explain the mechanisms that caused it. Good luck. They postulated that the Earth has a stable and very dense core overlain by an area called the asthenosphere, which is made up of rock rendered plastic by heat and pressure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Floating on the asthenosphere is the Earth's outer crust, or lithosphere. Dislocation within the Earth caused by the action of heat and pressure results in the movement of the lithosphere relative to the core and the axis of rotation. The initial attempts to explain continental drift have been considerably revised and refined in, into the modern theories of plate tectonics and ocean bed spreading. But the basic premise remains the same. The surface areas of the Earth move in relationship to its core and to its axis of rotation. The result of the movement of the Earth's lithosphere is that the surface area located at the axis of rotation does not remain in the same over long does not remain the same over long periods of time. 
The shifting accounts for the apparent wandering of the poles, as well as for several other puzzling aspects of Earth's geological history. Oh boy. I'm striking evidence that the surface areas of the Earth have moved enormous distance during geological history relative to its axis of rotation comes from the study of glaciers. Observations from around the globe show that almost all of the land areas of the Earth have been glaciated at some time in the past, including parts of Africa, India, and South America presently located on or near the equator. Without postulating either a substantial shifting of the Earth's surface relative to its axis rotation or a change in the axis, equatorial glaciation is inexplicable. <laughs> if global temperatures dropped to a level sufficient to glaciate even the equator, equator at some time in the past, all life on Earth would have been destroyed. Pretty close. Not all, not all, but, you know. Uh, if, however, the areas of Africa, India, and South America, which are presently located in tropical locales, once shifted to the polar regions and shifted from their present locations, their ancient glaciation is not at all mysterious. Ding, ding, ding. There you go. Shifting of the Earth's surface relative to its axis of rotation almost certainly a major cause of the so-called ice ages, the origins of which have puzzled geologists Oh, sorry, glaciologists, since the beginnings of that science. Previous explanations of ice ages, including global drops in temperature, the passage of the Earth through exceptionally cold regions in space, or through areas containing space dust that blocked out a significant amount of sun's radiation, and unexplained fluctuations in the amount of radiation generated by the sun, are all unsatisfactory. It seems much more likely that the areas of the Earth that were glaciated in the past, such as Northern Europe and North America, as far south as present-day New Jersey, were located much closer to one or the other of the poles at the time they were covered with ice. It's interesting that they talk about space dust and um, how it can affect the planet. I like that. This is the kind of stuff that I'm mad that I didn't learn in high school, or grade school for that matter. <clears throat> it's... Um, Disappointing, to say the least, that it's education, at least the public education that I received, and even the university education that I received, were so basic. Um, very very uh, unfortunate. Okay, back to the book. The study of paleoclimatology has also produced evidence supporting the proposition of the shifting of the Earth's crust relative to its axis of rotation. Paleoclimatologists study the climates of past ages on the various parts of the Earth's surface. They have found that Antarctica once supported rich varieties of plant and animal life, many of which could only have lived in temperate or even subtropical climates. Explorations in the far northern regions of Canada, Alaska, and Siberia have revealed that those areas also supported multitudes of animals and luxurious forests in the past, as did many of the islands presently located within the Arctic Circle. Obviously, those regions must have had much warmer climates at the times when the plant and animal life flourished there, which can be only explained in one of two ways. Either the climate of the entire world was much warmer in the past, or those areas now located near the poles were once located in much more temperate latitudes. If the entire world had warmed to the point where the polar areas had temperate climates, 
The tropical and subtropical areas of the earth would have been much too hot to support life, which is demonstrably untrue according to the fossil record. There's been a lot of life on the earth. I said that. That's not in the book. Thus, the areas now near the poles must have been located in temperate climate latitudes in the past. The slip. It's, 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 it's the rotating of the Earth's crust. Um, the Antarctic is going to be on the polar region. Sorry, not the polar region. The equatorial region. Um, and that's going to be uh, phenomenal. I'll do a bunch of sidebar stuff at the end of this chapter because I have a lot of thoughts about this stuff. I'm going to try to just to blaze through this real quick, though. Uh, ah, Earth scientists using the evidence discussed above in paleomagnetism have established an approximate chronology showing which areas of the Earth's surface were located at its north rotational axis during past ages. At the beginning of the Cambrian period, roughly 600 million years ago, the area of the Pacific Ocean now occupied by the Hawaiian Islands was at or near the Earth's north rotational axis. <laughs> by the Ordovician period, 100 million years later, the surface of the Earth's had shifted in such a manner that the area approximately 1,000 miles north and east of modern Japan was on or near the North Pole. 50 million years later, during the Silurian period, modern Sakhalin Island north of Japan was within the Arctic Circle. During the next 20 million years, the area of the modern Kamchatka's, Kamchatka and eastern Siberia shifted to a position very near the pole. Earth scientists have identified 99 separate locations that occupied the polar regions at one time or another during the ensuing 395 million years from the Silurian to the Pleistocene. During the past million years, 43 different areas of the Earth's surface have been on or near the North Geographic Pole, averaging over 1,500 miles distance from each other. Although contemporary Earth scientists have reached a consensus that the, Earth's, that the surface of the Earth has shifted relative to the planet's axis of rotation many times in the past, several problems remain. One area on which there is no... Uh, unanimity of opinion is the mechanism responsible for crustal shift. The answer most likely lies in high-pressure physics and the nature of the asthenosphere. Another more controversial problem concerns the speed of crustal shifts. During most of the 20th century, almost all of the geologists who were daring enough to accept the theory on continental drift assumed that the movement of the surface features of the Earth relative to the axis of rotation and relative to one another was very slow on the order of only a few inches per year at most. Then, an increasing number of Earth scientists began arguing for short periods of relatively rapid movement of the Earth's crust and long periods of stability. Those problems notwithstanding, there can no longer be any doubt that the surface of the Earth has shifted many times relative to its rotational axis. The phenomenon has led to the mistaken assumption that the rotational axis has moved relative to the Earth's surface. Thus, the term polar wander, the rotational axis of the Earth, has remained constant throughout its history. Apparently, polar wander is caused by the shifting of the Earth's crust. Methods of study. The study of paleomagnetism during the 20th century has yielded irrefutable evidence that many different areas of the Earth's surface have occupied polar positions during the history of the planet. Scientists studying paleomagnetism measure the weak magnetization of rocks. 
Virtually all rocks contain iron compositions that can become magnetized. In the study of paleomagnetism, the most important of these compositions are magnetite and hematite, which are commonly found in the basaltic rocks and sandstones. Paleomagnetism may also be measured in less common rocks that contain iron sulfide. In igneous rocks, <laughs> in igneous rocks, magnetization takes place when the iron compositions within the rocks align themselves with the Earth's magnetic field as the rocks cool. In sedimentary rocks, small magnetic particles align with the magnetic field as they settle through the water and maintain that alignment as the sediments into which they sink solidify. Magnetized rocks not only indicate the direction of the north magnetic pole at the time that they were formed, but also show um, how far from the pole they were at the formation by the angle of their dip. Scientists call the horizontal angle of variation and their dip the inclination. Variation reveals the approximate longitude of the rock sample at the time of its formation relative to the north magnetic pole, and inclination gives its approximate latitude. By ascertaining the date at which the rock sample began being examined was formed, using well-known methods, scientists are able to establish the area of the Earth's surface relative to the North Magnetic Pole that was occupied by the rock at the time of its formation. There are, however, many pitfalls for the unwary scientists investigating paleomagnetism. A rock whose magnetism is being studied may have moved considerable distance from its place of formation by glacial action or by crustal movement along the major fracture of the Earth's surface, such as the San Andreas Fault on North America's west coast. High temperatures, pressure, and chemical action can distort or destroy the magnetization of a rock. Folding and the movement of the continents relative to one another may also alter the original orientation of the rocks whose magnetism is being studied. All of these pitfalls may be avoided through the expedient of basing estimates of the relative positions of the North Magnetic Pole on a great number of rock samples of the same age, gathered from many different locations on all the continents. Another problem in the paleomagnetic studies involves the constant movement of the North Magnetic Pole relative to the North Geographic Area. <clears throat> Recent studies show that the North Magnetic Pole moved from 70 degrees to 76 degrees north latitude, approximately 345 miles or 576 kilometers, <clears throat> during the period of 1831 to 1975. This phenomenon might actually be called true polar wander, though it does not involve any alteration either of the Earth's axis of rotation or the surface of the planet relative to the axis of the rotation. More geophysicists studying this movement have concluded that over a period of several thousand years, the average position of the North Magnetic Pole coincide with that of the North Magnetic Geographic Pole. <clears throat> Thus, when scientists learn that the North Magnetic Pole was located near Hawaii 600 million years ago, it is a virtual certainty that modern Hawaii was at the time located near the North Geographic Pole. Oof. <clears throat> Context. The most immediately impressing question facing all residents of planet Earth concerning apparent polar wonder is the speed with which the phenomenon may occur. An historian of science, Charles H. Hapgood, compiled a huge amount of compelling evidence in the 1950s that massive shifts of the Earth's crust relative to its axis of rotation occur in geologically brief periods of time. Hapgood made a very strong case the surface area of the K 
Canadian Yukon, which is now located at approximately 62 degrees north latitude and longitude 137 degrees west, have occupied the northern geographic pole prior to 80,000 years ago. Then, in a massive movement which took less than 5,000 years, the Earth's surface shifted in such a way that an area of Greenland Sea, that an area of the Greenland Sea, now located at approximately 72 degrees north latitude and longitude 10 degrees east, occupied the North Polar region. This shift involves a distance of over almost 5,000 miles. Hapgood offers further evidence that the Earth's surface remains stable relative to its axis of rotation for approximately 20,000 years. Then begin another massive shift resulting in the area of Hudson's Bay that now occupies the surface region located at about 16 degrees north latitude and longitude 83 degrees west, moving to the Earth's north rotational axis. This movement of approximately 3,500 miles took less than 5,000 years. Again, the Earth's surface became stable, according to Hapgood, this time for more than 30,000 years until about 17,000 years ago. At that time, the Earth's surface began another movement, <clears throat> lasting nearly 5,000 years and resulting in the present surface-pole relationship. If Hapgood is right about the surface of the planet shifting enormous distances relatively short periods of time, the period during which the shift actually occurs must be a traumatic era for the Earth's flora and fauna, including humankind. Such rapid movement would certainly produce earthquakes and volcanic action of almost unimaginable proportions throughout the globe. Weather and tidal patterns would be greatly and unpredictably altered, which could have fatal consequences for many plant and animal species. The last result offers yet another piece of powerful evidence for the rapid shift hypothesis. The Earth's fossil record offers examples of the mass extinctions and extermination of many species of flora and fauna during the geological history of the planet. The most recent of such events occurred at the end of the Pleistocene Epoch about 12,000 years ago. Literally tens of millions of animals in North America alone died in a relatively short period of time, leaving their sometimes remarkably well-preserved remains lumped together in huge boneyards, stretching geographically from Alaska to Florida. Jeez. This mass extinction of fauna must have been caused by the events accompanying crustal displacement. Volcanic action on a, on a gigantic scale not only would throw a huge amount of ash into the air, causing a lowering of global temperatures and an increase in rainfall, producing widespread flooding, but would also produce the quantities of poisonous gases lethal to animals and humans in the vicinity. Rapid and pronounced weather changes would destroy food supplies, which may have been the ultimate cause of extinctions of many species. Widespread earthquakes could also take a large toll on animal life. If, as more and more geophysicists are coming to believe, the shifting of the Earth's surface does take place rapidly at infrequent intervals and for reasons not currently well understood, the phenomenon is for the most utmost importance. Modern civilization would not survive the enormous climatic dislocations that must accompany such a shift. It is therefore imperative that the phenomenon known as polar wander be studied to the point that it can be, if not prevented, at least predicted and prepared for. That's the end of the chapter. Uh, no kidding, this should be the highest thing that all of Earth's scientists should be dedicating their time to. We're talking about cataclysm that wipes out 99% all life on the planet.
you know, vertical farms is not going to do the trick. <laughs> there needs to be other things involved. Um, don't know if it can be prevented. I've had some ideas, considering all the other information that what may cause it, uh, a large CME during a weakened magnetic field um, could could instigate that change. I think we've talked about that before in season one and some of the links I've posted in my podcast description page on anchor.fm. Um, I don't know if having any sort of uh, orbiting satellites that can generate a shield to prevent the energy and protons particle bombardment from a CME. Uh, I don't know if that would do the trick. I've thought about that. It's one of the things that they were going to do when they go to Mars because Mars doesn't have a very strong magnetic shield at all. That's why if you go to Mars, you got to be underground. They had hypothesized, I think I saw it in some magazine, Popular Science or something, where they were going to put at the Lagrange one point a shield, uh, a satellite creating a I think it was a nuclear-powered satellite generating a magnetic shadow, basically, that Mars would be in to prevent the solar radiation bombardment from the sun to make it a little bit more habitable. I don't know if doing that for the Earth would work uh, in regards to stopping a CME or preventing a CME from impacting the Earth and doing the, basically kickstarting the movement of the crusts. Um, I think preventing it is not likely to happen, possible. Um, prepared for? Totally different. Irving Finkel, Noah's Ark, you know, he, Irving Finkel, look him up, Google him. I'll post a link in the description of this podcast. I think I've done that before. You know, he deciphered the story of Gilgamesh and in the story of Gilgamesh there was instructions from Utnapishtim about how to build a boat Noah's Ark basically um, that I think needs to be that plan I'm actually going to email Irving Finkel and be like hey uh, I can't find the plans anywhere could you post the instructions and get them all over everywhere so everyone can have access to them um, and whoever can should build one now they're big you can scale them i don't know how well um the one he built in that video that i'll post a link to it was only half the size of the actual instructions because they couldn't raise enough money to build a full-size one which is a shame uh, but they built one it's, it's pretty crazy but i think also you could use more modern techniques uh, and materials um, that should be the most of utmost importance to everybody on the world in the world not not saying that these things aren't important but they really feel like distractions and pale in comparison to importance of the survivity survival of humanity when you get to brexit and when you get to all of these things that are happening and they might just kind of be all happening and you know it's all important it's all important everything matters but how can we shift to a common goal rather than a dividing goal? You know, in the science fiction writers and back in the early 
I don't know, 40s and 50s, maybe even before that, all of their hypothesis was like, well, the only thing that's going to really reunite humanity is if there's like an alien invasion. Um, and then they all come together and rally and, you know, and then probably go back to their petty separateness afterwards. But in the short time when there's a common cause, i.e. survival, um, could be the thing that brings us all together and has us set aside these other things that are separating us currently. Um, okay, thanks for listening. Um, I'm going to find another book to read. I'm not going to go back and read the chapters that I skipped over or continue the chapters in this book. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but my computer crashed. My hard drive died. All of the PDFs that I had located that I wanted to read are gone. And I don't remember because I didn't have a good backup plan, i.e. backup my hard drive. Um, I don't have a record of the ones I was going to say or read. Say the, 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 the ones that I was going to say, <laughs> the ones that I were going to read on this podcast. But, you know, what? actually, I think in an earlier episode in season one, I think I talked about them. So I'll go back and listen to that and see what I can find. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. As always, it's appreciated. If you like what you see here, see here. If you like what you hear here, um, you know, go ahead and follow me in, on Twitter. It's at H underscore prep. Um, tell your friends. Share the podcast. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. And um, also, again, just a plug for Hemp Lucid, um, a great CBD. If you're looking for a good CBD com- company and product, Check out my description on anchor.fm for this podcast. I'm going to post a link there um, so you can go check out those um, products. Until next time, stay safe. Prepare yourself as best you can, and um, we'll talk to you next time.